0: John chapter 1, verses 6 to 13. Believe in His name. Thank you. Good. Thank you, Lord. This word needs to go out. Amen. (laughs) So, now for some light shining in the darkness. And the darkness will never put the light out. John chapter 1, verses 6 to 13. Continuing with our study and unpacking the truth of the prologue, you could entitle uh, these verses, the overall theme of these verses, amongst the many themes and the overarching thing of the prologue as believe in his name. So beginning in verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man or every person. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These are the words of God, and thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So, verse 6, There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. It seems an odd thing to do there considering the tremendous truth that we've been taught so far in the first five verses, some of life's most foundational and fundamental truths that a human being can or ever will be confronted with, the very being and nature of God, the triune being of God, and the life and, yes, the work and ministry of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. It might seem a bit peculiar for some that in the middle of his prologue, John seems to give us something of of an interlude about someone else about the man that we know of as John the Baptist or John the baptizer however the Apostle John's doing the right thing he begins his gospel he begins his story his good news at the right place in the beginning which he did in the first five verses and then after establishing the eternality of Christ as being the divine word who is in the beginning, who is with God, and who was God, through whom all things exist. God the Father's agent in creation. Then John takes, uh, the Apostle John, gives you something of an interlude. We begin in the beginning, in eternity past, where we should begin, with the Messiah, in his preexistence as God. And then we need to begin in the beginning of his time on earth, in his earthly ministry. And first things, thirst. We have to begin as some of the other Gospels do, with the life and ministry of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptizer, who from the mouth of Jesus himself will be praised as one of the greatest human beings who ever lived in history, one of the most important persons who ever lived in history, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of the old prophets, a man who was himself prophesied centuries before that he would come first, that he would announce the coming of the divine word, the great son of David, the Messiah, who would bring salvation not only to the Jewish people, but to the world. And so you have to begin with John's ministry in order to appreciate Jesus' ministry. First things first. The one ministry is part of the other and grows out of the other. And so the Apostle John reminds us of the coming of the words herald, the words personal ambassador or announcer, to what? To prepare the way for the word who became flesh, To, as we would say, step out upon the world stage and complete his redeeming mission. So, something of a brief interlude here in this verse, introducing us to the herald, the forerunner of the Messiah, the forerunner of the divine word, the true light of God, coming into the world to, to reveal God to the world. John the baptizer is given to us as an example of the shining of the light. He himself is not the light. The divine light, the source of all light. But he is part of the light. He serves the light. The light surrounds him. The light shines in him and through him, although he himself is not the divine light. He belonged to the light. Again, the light shone in him and through him. He paved the way for he who was the divine light coming into the world. And John is a very appropriate name. If you remember, John's parents did not name John. God the Almighty named John. I should remark upon the sovereignty of God here. This is a plan, folks, from eternity past, and every person's place in it and every event in it. This man was in the mind and heart of God before the world was spoken into being by the power and authority of God. John was prophesied many, many centuries ago, just as the Messiah that he was to serve. We read of his coming in the prophet Malachi and in the works of the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 40 in particular. And John the baptizer was keenly aware of this. Can you imagine living such a life that from the time of your birth, from your earliest memory, knew you know exactly who you are and what you are and what you are to be in this world and what you are to do? His parents, of course, received this information from an angelic messenger before his birth. The Gospel of Luke tells us that this man was completely filled with the power of the Spirit of God before he ever entered this world from his mother's womb. A truly amazing individual. A man who was a living bridge between two worlds. John the Baptizer was a living bridge between the era of the Old Covenant and the era of the New Covenant. The inauguration of Messiah's kingdom in his coming in this world. Truly wonderful man. And his name is significant. The name that we translate into English as John is Yohanan in Hebrew Aramaic. Yohanan. And Yohanan means, and I will use God's personal name with great respect and reverence, of course. John's name, Yohanan, means Yahweh has been gracious or Yahweh is gracious. It is a perfect name for this servant of the Lord. Perfect name for a man who was prepared and chosen and sent by God to announce the one who would be the very personification of God's graciousness to humanity. And it is significant that the author of this gospel is named Yohanan. Yahweh is gracious. Now this man, John, of course, if you um, want a little more background on his life or a refresher, uh, simply go to the first two chapters of the gospel of Luke, which gives us as much or more information about John the baptizer, his birth, his early years, as any of the Gospels, although we will encounter more of John the Baptizer in the Gospel of John chapter 1. The point of the Apostle John here in the prologue is that John, John the Baptist, the one who was to prepare the way for the divine words, public work, one of the most important points we have here is John is explicit, John the Apostle is explicit in telling us that John the baptizer was prepared and sent and commissioned by God himself. And he himself was not the light, but he is a conductor of the light. He was to proclaim the arrival of the eternal word who was in the beginning with God and who is, was, and ever shall be God. John the baptizer was to be a witness and he is satisfying Jewish old covenant law and culture, he is a formal legal witness to the true identity of the Word, of Jesus the Messiah. His job is to be that legal witness and to give testimony, to testify about the eternal Word, the light of God to mankind. So we are John is preparing us, the Apostle John, by speaking of John the Baptizer, is preparing us here even in the prologue to encounter the public ministry of the Word made flesh. To prepare us for the arrival of the Messiah. So it's perfectly natural that we begin with the ministry of the words Herald, who again was prophesied four to seven hundred years before his own birth, according to divine plan and decree. And the Apostle John wants to make several other things very, very clear. This may be another reason why he speaks of the baptizer here in the prologue and telling us, making it abundantly clear. That John the Baptizer was not the Messiah. He was not the divine word, but he conducted the light and message of the divine word. We aren't certain about this, but John may be settling a score here by making these points about John the Baptist, the these contrasts of John the Baptist with Jesus. Uh, some historians have thought that there may have been something of a personality cult at the time that was building around. John the Baptist is some sort of Messianic figure, even though he was put to death, martyred even before the crucifixion of Jesus. And even though Jesus clearly said who John was, and John himself clearly told the populace who he was and that he was not the Messiah, but it is believed that perhaps some Jewish folks clinging to Judaism or wanting to refute Jesus as the Messiah that there was something here about John the baptizer's true identity that needed to be made clear. That may be one of the reasons why the Apostle John mentions him here in the prologue. Um, Let's read verses 7 and 8 together because I want to unpack the truth of 7 and 8 together and not interrupt the flow of John's thought. He, that is John the baptizer, came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not, or he himself was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. So first of all, of course, John the Apostle is making very clear that the Messiah's herald was not divine and was not the son of David, the Jewish Messiah. Now notice if you, if you look at this text and you study it carefully, there's some contrasts here that John wants you to notice. Some contrasts between John the baptizer and contrasts between Jesus, the divine word who is coming into the world to reveal God to the world. First of all, notice in Christ, the divine word, he is divine. He pre-existed before the world existed. He was from all eternity past. And it's abundantly clear here the way John speaks of John the baptizer. And when we meet John the baptizer later in the chapter, John had a beginning. John is not divine. John the baptizer is a mere mortal human being Who had a beginning and who was born into this world like all of the rest of us? He had a beginning. He was a mere mortal man. John tells us in the prologue, of course, that the divine word who was with God is himself God. And it's abundantly clear in the prologue here and in the remainder of chapter 1 that John the baptizer is a mere mortal human being. In the prologue, we learn that Jesus, of course, the divine word, the eternal word. He is the true light, the true source of divine light, God's ultimate revelation of God to human beings. Now, John the Apostle tells us that John the Baptizer, he was not the light, but he certainly was an agent of the light. He served the light, he testified and witnessed to the true light, and he was a conductor of the light into this world. Of course, John tells us today specifically... Jesus, the divine word, the divine light, the divine light of God to humanity, he must be the very object of a person's trust if that person is to know God, if that person is to achieve real life, eternal life. The very object of their trust must be the divine word personally himself. This kind of faith and trust is not to be placed in John the baptizer. He was an agent, a herald, through whose witness, through whose testimony, People come to trust in the true light, the word who is Christ himself. Now, so this man John, his mission, his purpose was to testify, to give testimony. He was to be a witness to the light, a witness, a testimonial for he who was and is the light, the life, and the truth. Now, we translate this phrase into English. He came for a witness. He came to be a witness. In the original Greek, what John writes here is probably formal legal language. Some New Testament Greek scholars argue that John's making a point here by saying John the baptizer was, by Jewish law and culture and custom, to be considered a legal witness as to the true identity of the person and work of Jesus. It means this man John, sent by God, was to give factual, competent, eyewitness testimony concerning what he himself had seen, had heard, And had experienced. Now what for? Why? John the Apostle tells us. What is the purpose of John the baptizer's testimony? The purpose of course of John's testimony, very important, was so that everyone who heard his witness, everyone who heard his testimony about Jesus, thereby everyone who is introduced to Jesus the Messiah, the divine Word, All who hear may come to genuine faith and belief in the word, in the divine word, into the one, the light of God, coming to the world, coming to mankind, the one who is shortly in John's gospel to step out onto the world stage again, if I may use that expression, and perform, achieve his redemptive work. And this is very interesting. Do you know 2,000 years later, John the baptizer is still a formal legal witness? John spoke, and he still speaks the world over, not just in Palestine. All who have ever come to saving faith, indirectly. John hasn't been alive on this planet for 2,000 years. He's been in the Father's house for 2,000 years. And yet, everyone hearing this gospel who has come to saving faith in Christ is dependent on John the Baptist's opening proclamation of the true identity and saving person Of Jesus the Messiah so John the baptizer the last of the great prophets was not the light he was not the word but it was absolutely necessary as prophesied centuries beforehand that he would come to prepare the way to prepare first the Jewish people and also go back and look at John's ministry in the Gospels there are lots of Gentiles who are showing up to listen to this wild man in the wilderness and perhaps to be baptized by him as well, and to receive his message, and to be looking forward to this one that he is announcing, that he is proclaiming, this one that he says is coming on his coattails, who is going to change everything for everybody, not only Israel, but for all of humanity. Now, verse 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world, enlightens every man, or you could translate that as anthropos, anthropon enlightening or giving light or illuminating every human being, every man, every woman, every person. Or let me offer you this translation. The true light which enlightens or illumines every man, every person, was in the act of coming into the world to make himself known. That's very interesting. So now here, Christ, the Word, the true light of God, he is called, let's pick apart this phrase, it is meaningful in the original language. We translate usually as what John writes here as the true light. The word that John uses for true is alethinos, from aletheia, meaning that which is true, that which is factual, that which is fact. But alethinos has an interesting nuance. The word alethinos, which we translate as true, also means this it means real, it means genuine. It means ideal do you get it do you get what John is saying why he's using this word John is saying that the eternal word the one he is introducing us to in this prologue the eternal word he is the genuine one he is the ideal one he is the true perfect light of God Almighty coming into the world he is the one true light in whose radiance all other lights dim in comparison now, some would suggest, I found this interesting in my word study of this word this week. There are some New Testament um, <clears throat> Greek scholars who argue that we could or should translate elethinos as ultimate. I don't know if I, if I don't like that even better. So, John very well may be saying that this divine word who was in the beginning, who was with God and was God, Christ, the divine light, he is the ultimate. Light of God coming into the world to enlighten humanity. And that is the absolute truth. That is precisely who and what Jesus was and is. And John is very clear, very adamant about this. Now here's an important question. Dig a little deeper. What exactly does John mean by this? Have you ever wondered that? What does he mean by this? There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Or enlightens every person what does he mean by that or let me give you this question what does he mean the true light enlightens or illumines every man or every person when obviously every person does not believe so what does he mean by that he doesn't mean he the true light came into the world and that every single solitary person exposed to the light that he brings believes because obviously that is not the case So what does he mean by Jesus, the divine word? He illumines everyone. Or he enlightens everyone. Even though obviously everyone does not believe. We should probably look into that. John is saying that Christ, the eternal word, the ultimate light or revelation of God for humanity, as such, he is the one true source of illumination or enlightenment to all people. Whether people embrace his light his illumination or not. That's what John is saying. The divine word, the light, shines in the darkness, John told us, and yet there are those of the darkness who prefer to remain part of the darkness, who flee from the light, who reject that light, who reject that illumination. Let me read you a quote from theologian William Hendrickson. I think he hits the nail on the proverbial head here. He writes, He, the divine word, Jesus, the divine light, John is saying that he illumines every person who hears his message, who hears his gospel, who hears his truth. He imparts a degree of understanding concerning ultimate spiritual matters, though not always or necessarily resulting in salvation. He is the divine light whether all accept him or not. He provides a certain understanding of spiritual matters to everyone whose ears and minds are reached by his message of salvation. The majority... Sadly enough, it seems, however, do not respond favorably. Many, many, thank God, however, who are confronted by the light, are enlightened by the sovereign power of God, by the saving grace of God, and they receive the word with a proper attitude of heart and mind, and thereby they obtain eternal life. The divine light, who is Christ, shines upon all of humanity, is what John is saying, and demands a decision. You see what he's saying? Jesus, the divine word, is the ultimate revelation of God to humanity, whether he is accepted, whether he is obeyed, whether he is received or not. He is the one and the only true light. Whether he is received or not. And it's the sovereign grace of God that enlightens the hearts and minds of those who will believe, who are brought to saving faith and belief, in the divine word. You see, the gospel of Jesus forces a decision. The message of Jesus forces a distinction. When you hear about Jesus, there is no such thing as neutrality in the end. This gospel does not leave us that. Jesus himself did not leave us that. The gospel forces a decision. It forces a submission. It forces a distinction. There is no in-between in the end. There is no no no-man's land. In the end, there is no neutrality. There is no such thing. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. This verse here should be very, very shocking. For indeed it is. Let me offer you this translation from the original. In the world he was... In the world he was. He arrived, personally. And the world came into being through him, as John told us earlier. But the world did not acknowledge him. To his own, his own people, the nation of people, the race of people to whom he was specifically sent. To his own, he came, but his own people did not welcome him. Folks, that is one of the greatest outrages and one of the greatest scandals in all of history. That the divine creator made a personal visitation in the flesh. He was not acknowledged. He was not properly received. That is the greatest scandal and outrage of all of history. Te esta idea. In the original Greek, we translate as to his own. I found this phrase pretty interesting as well. We usually translate it as to his own. That's a pretty accurate translation. But let me tell you something more of what this phrase means, what John is saying. This phrase can be translated as to his own property, to his own home. How's that? He made a personal visitation to his own property that he himself made. He visited a place which should be and was expected to be his own home to his own people to whom he was promised and he was not appropriately acknowledged or received. I like to throw in a little church history, forgive me. Uh, One of the early church father philosophers and theologians, Augustine from North Africa, I think it was basically the book of Romans which helped bring him to saving faith in Christ. But in Augustine's writings, he said when he read this verse in the Gospel of John, he could never get over it. He could never get over it. This visitation of the divine word and how he was received. And Augustine said most of his life that that actually was one of the verses that brought him to saving faith in Christ, the true light of God in the world. So John could be very well saying that the the world that the word came into was his own property. That is the absolute truth. He made it. It's his own property. And according to divine plan, he made a personal visitation in the flesh to his own home, his own property. You could also translate as coming to his own. So obviously this is making a reference to the word, the Messiah finally arriving after being prophesied and promised for centuries, and then not being properly received or accepted by the people to whom he was promised for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years. An outrageous scandal. The most outrageous in history. Israel did not receive him. The Roman Empire did not receive him. All of sinful, fallen humanity did not receive him or acknowledge him. And yet, a small, faithful few, blessed and enlightened by God, did. A small, faithful few, a comparatively small and very blessed number, who by the power of God's Spirit, by the words of Jesus himself, therefore had eyes to see and ears to hear. They did receive, they did believe, they did acknowledge him, and they received life. The life that Jesus proclaims in this gospel, the light and life that John records him as proclaiming and representing in this gospel. They became the beginning of Messiah's kingdom in this world, the beginnings of his church, his kingdom in this era of history. Now the truth of this verse, folks go back and think about this some more. I could dwell on this for a while. And I'm not going to do that. But just this verse there are some very, very hard, sobering, and profound things that this verse has to say about the nature of fallen humanity. And some beautiful and wonderful things to say about the nature of God, the divine word, and his mission and his purpose, his mission to come personally to save and to pardon. Fallen human creatures who in no way whatsoever deserved this visitation or deserved Him tolerating them and tolerating their rebellion and their hatred and their animosity and their hostility towards Him. And yet He came to give Himself to save and to pardon these cosmic rebels and traitors of which we all are and need a Savior. This sinful, rebellious world, fallen humanity, even the Jewish people, The Jewish nation to whom the Messiah was promised, they who were themselves to be a light to the Gentiles and the pagans, all disowned the promised Christ. Greatest outrage of history. All rejected him except those who are referenced in verses 12 and 13. Let me give you the beautiful, wonderful news of those mentioned in verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Let me offer you this translation. But as many as did accept, receive, acknowledge him. To them he gave the right to become God's children, to those who trust and believe in his name. You see here, even in the prologue, John is giving us something of the purpose of the book. Remember, John tells us ultimately the purpose of the book, towards the end of the book, chapter 20, verse 31. Chapter 20, verse 31 says what? These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Does this sound familiar? But to those who did accept, receive, acknowledge Him, He gave the right to become God's children, those who believe in His name. Now what does that mean? we have to make that crystal clear abundantly clear what john means by that here so here john is pointing forward to what probably one of your favorite passages of the bible john chapter 3 he's pointing forward to john chapter 3 that faithful conversation of jesus with nicodemus in which those who by god's grace are told those who by god's grace believe in the word's name who trust and believe they receive eternal life this these people to these people the Word, who is light and life, he grants these people the right to cease being rebellious creatures and to become adopted children of God, adopted spiritual children of God, restored to the Creator. John is setting us up here for what he's going to teach us through Jesus in chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. Let me give you something of an ESV study Bible note here. There's, uh, those I know many members of the church and some of you watching you have the ESV study Bible. I encourage you to get it and make use of it. It is an absolutely magnificent resource. <clears throat> and I always encourage you on Tuesday nights or Sunday mornings to consult those textual notes, which are a great help. The ESV study Bible says at this point, this indicates that saving faith precedes becoming members of God's family through adoption as his children, end quote. Yes. Yes. The Holy Spirit of God has to bring enlightenment and life to that person and their mind and their heart is open and thereby they are granted the ability to have saving faith and thereby to come to Christ as Redeemer, Savior, and Lord and thereby to be born again from above by the power of the Spirit and thereby to be adopted into the family of God as a child of God. John is teaching it already in the prologue. Upon that new birth, that genuine conversion, the redeemed enlivened soul or person becomes a new creature, an adopted child of God with absolutely everything rights and privileges that that relationship implies that is magnificent. More on that relationship as we work our way through the book. Sorry, folks. My poor, old, sick, tired body is feeling it. I know some of you are feeling it as well. But I am not going to cheat anyone here in person or on that camera from one bit of truth from this book. One bit. If it kills me. So hang in there with me. I don't want to leave anything out. I know you're with me. Thank you. When John writes, But as many as received him, Now, what does he mean by received him? We've got to get this straight. There are a lot of erroneous things out there about what receiving Jesus is, what coming to Jesus is, what accepting Jesus is, what the true message of the gospel of Jesus is. We're going to make this clear. What does John mean by received him? The ESV study Bible gives you a very important point. Quote, This implies not merely intellectual agreement about some facts about Jesus. This receiving means welcoming Him and submitting to Him for who and what He truly is. That's what receiving Him means. It means receiving Him and submitting to Him in a very personal, one-on-one, genuine relationship. A relationship that is very personal, again, one-on-one, with He who is the divine Word, who is with God and is God, Savior and Lord. Let me make this statement. If He is not Lord, He is not Savior. If He is your Savior, He must be your Lord. He is both. And they both go hand in hand. If He is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. That's what John is saying. Now, very important. What does John mean by believe in his name? He, the divine word, gave the right to those who believed in him, trusted in him personally, one-on-one. He gave them the right to become adopted children of God. He gave this right to those who believe in his name. Now let's get crystal clear exactly what that means. What does it mean to believe in his name? The word that John uses for believe is a very important Greek New Testament word, pistuo, which is funny to us, but it's an important word. Pistuo we usually translate as trust or believe or faith, depending on the context in which it's used. But folks, every single solitary time, it means you must trust, you must have confidence in, trust in faith, in belief, in personally, one on one, you and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Divine Word Himself. And it must be honest, it must be authentic, it must be genuine, and it must be all or nothing, everything. That's what it means. Personal, genuine, one to one trust and confidence. It is very specific, it is very explicit, and it is very personal. Now, a little more on, to believe in His name. What exactly does that mean, to believe in His name? It means to have this real, genuine, personal belief and trust and confidence in this, folks. The sum total of all that the divine word, Jesus Christ, is. You must submit to. You must have personal trust and faith and confidence in absolutely everything that he is. Everything that he said and everything that he did and everything that he does or he will do. This is comprehensive. It covers absolutely everything. This is total and complete commitment. Let me read that again because there are some folks out there who need to hear this. What John means by believing in his name is to believe personally in the sum total of all that Jesus Christ, the divine word, is. The totality of his person and his work. Who he is, what he does. We must embrace, we must trust, we must appropriate, we must submit to his true identity and his true authority. We must submit to the work of his mission. We must submit to the work of his divine plan for this world and everyone and everything in it. We must submit to and appropriate everything that he taught, everything that he said, all of him, all that is about him. That's what belief in his name really means and really covers, and it covers everything. And absolutely nothing else will do, and nothing less will do. That's the great message from this part of the prologue this morning. Verse 13, with which we conclude this morning. Those who believe in his name, that is, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You must be born all over again as a totally new creature, a totally new type of human being. And it doesn't come the natural way. It doesn't happen that way. Born not of blood. That means the bloody birth from your mother's womb that we all as human beings experience when we come into this world. That's what he means. It's not a natural physical birth. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen by the will of the flesh. It doesn't happen by the plans or the lusts or the sexual impulses of male or female. This birth doesn't take place that way. There's no kind of pedigree it has to be a divine, miraculous sort of pedigree. Nor does it take place by the will of man, the will of human parents. It doesn't take place that way either. It is of God. Now this truth before we close. He is speaking, as he will speak in chapter 3, of being born anew all over again. As a child of God, this work is all of God, folks. And thanks for Dan... In his message last week and in the Bible studies, human salvation is a work of God the Almighty and a work of God the Almighty alone, 110% and beyond. There is nothing whatsoever that sinful, fallen human creatures can do to save themselves or earn their salvation. No way. No way. No religious pedigree from your family or your church or your denomination. And no do-good or deeds that you can possibly do all of your life will win your way into the eternal kingdom of the divine word. It does not happen that way. John is absolutely adamant and crystal clear upon this. It is all a work of God. And I have to make that crystal clear, folks, because there's an awful lot of earning your salvation that's going on out there in churches in America that claim that they're Christian. And they're teaching heresy, apostasy. Those who receive the word, those who are given eyes to see and ears to hear by the Spirit of God, those who thereby receive the word are those who believe in his name and believe the way I described to you. They are those who become adopted children of God. They are those who become born of God. A spiritual new birth not the physical biological human birth by way of natural human parents the real parent here the real life giver here the real giver of this birth in this life is God himself and God alone by way of the word by way of the person and work of the word who is with God and who was God from all eternity past This new life that John speaks of is entirely an act of God. I know I'm wearing this point out because it's my duty to do so. This new life John the apostle speaks of is entirely an act of God by way and work of the word who is God. And we'll close with that thought for this morning. But I'm going to give you a few thoughts from a magnificent man of God who I dearly love, although I never met him. But I long to meet him one day. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a wonderful Australian uh, theologian and author by the name of Leon Morris. Uh, Brother Leon Morris has been in the father's house for some time now. But he was an Australian. He was a wonderful man of God, wonderful theologian and Bible commentator. And he was one of those truly gifted persons who was able to take the really difficult and deep truth of the Bible and communicate it clearly and passionately and wonderfully to regular folks like us. He wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John, which is really great. But he also wrote this book, which sadly is out of print. But sometimes you can find it in used bookstores. If you find this book, get it it's called expository reflections on the gospel of John and it's the truth from his commentary on John but it's written in a more devotional manner but it is an absolutely magnificent book on this gospel And I'll close with what brother Leon has to say with these verses that we explore today the Apostle John is saying that no human effort of any sort will get us into the family of God consider what people can do for themselves and for one another in any way that you want to. That is not the way into God's family. There is absolutely nothing human that can bring it about. But John says believers were born of God. I guess were born is quite a reasonable translation, but the verb in the Greek is one that is properly used of the action of the male parent, the father, rather than of the female parent, the mother. Or in old-fashioned language, it means were begotten. John is saying that membership in the heavenly family comes about because of the action of the Father, the God who is the heavenly Father. He does what must be done to make us children, adopted children of God. So John is saying with some emphasis that to get into the family of God, there must be a miracle. There must be a supernatural act. It can be explained by no merely human mechanism at all. It is not in the control of human beings. It is what God does. It is sheer miracle. As we shall see, John will bring out more of his meaning when we come, of course, to chapter 3. There he speaks of the necessity of being born all over again, but a supernatural birth from above. To become a member of God's family does not mean to make the best of ordinary human life. It is not a matter of dusting off a few of the worst habits of our present life to make it somewhat better. Oh, America, listen to me. It is not a matter of a little moral self-help improvement. It is a complete and total radical revolutionary transformation. It means such a drastic change that it cannot be brought about by anything that we or anyone else does, but only by what God does. It is not the way of human excellence. It is not the result of human philosophy. It is the way of God. A little later in this prologue, John speaks of the Word as becoming flesh, a human being. And dwelling amongst human beings that is the way that God began this process of bringing about the adoption of fallen human creatures into his family in their natural state they are not fit we are not fit to be members of the family for we are all sinners no one's puny effort can make them fit for membership in the family of God for that A great and mysterious divine action is needed. And that action began with the sending of the divine word, the Son of God, to become a man. It continued when the divine word, the Son of God, laid down his perfect life on a cross and took up his perfect life again in his resurrection. John tells us this in some of the best known words in the whole of Scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the divine word, so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have life eternal. That is the great divine action that puts away human sin and opens up the way to everlasting life, the life of the adopted child of God. John is not saying that everyone is saved. He is not saying everyone will be saved. He is saying that it is the person who does genuinely believe who is given life and will not perish. Believing and eternal life go hand in hand according to this gospel, and not just believing as though it does not matter what one believes, as long as one is sincere. Thank you, Brother Leon. It matters what you believe. Pardon me for getting a little exercise. It very much matters what you believe. This passage makes it abundantly clear. That the saved are those who believe in the divine word, in Jesus' name, and everything that that means and that implies. Boy, the old Southern DNA preacher is coming out of me this morning. Please forgive me. When people trust God in this way, and it is the only way, God acts in them, He goes to work. He does it all. God takes them. He transforms them. He fills them with his spirit. He enables them to be the kind of people that they could never be on their own strength or their own wisdom or own ability. John is saying that God's love for us is so great that he makes provision for us to leave the old self-centered way the way that concentrates on our own success and our own happiness. He enables us to leave that way forever and to enter the new way, the way of membership into the family of God. John is saying that God will take our lives and put order into them. He and he alone can and will make them rich and full and significant. He will set us on the one and only right way. John is putting before us here oh so early in his gospel. The possibility of living in the fullness of all that is involved in being able to call God our Father by way of the Word who is in the beginning, who was with God, and who is God. Sovereign or God, our Heavenly Father, Thank you for the most magnificent words ever spoken or written that you gave to your faithful apostle, our elder brother Yachanan. Thank you for making him part of the plan. Thank you for making us part of the plan. Thank you for speaking to us. The truth that all of us need to find our meaning and purpose in this life, in you, Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for giving this good news, the best news. Thank you for being gracious and merciful to us when we did not and do not deserve it. Thank you for creating this magnificent divine plan from eternity past, for perfectly executing it perfectly to the last letter in the past, now, and always. And again, thank you for making us part of this plan. We pray for the exposition of the truth of this book. And I pray that its message will go out not only throughout our community, to our country, but to the entire world. And we thank you that folks on the far side of the word are hearing this truth, and your spirit is opening their mind and helping them to understand. And I thank you... (coughs) for the privilege of being able to study these divine words. And I pray for the strength and the ability to in a humbling, faulting way, be able to give the truth of this word to everyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear. And I thank you for the patience of these good folks in being willing to take the time to hear the truth, all the truth, the deep truth, of this magnificent message. Please bless this message to the honor and glory of King Jesus, the divine word, and to the spreading and strengthening of his kingdom in this world until his return. In the blessed and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.